What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation, who is back in New York after his wonderful getaway down in Florida, just in time to see the Houston Rockets, his NBA title favorite, which is suddenly looking not as crazy <laughs> as it did a month ago, uh, playing in, this, in the Big Apple. Michael, how are you doing? Ben, I am wonderful. Uh, you know, it's about 20 degrees in New York, but we are all, we're surviving. We, uh, I cannot wait, as you said, to, to see Harden, uh, the best player in the world tonight at Madison Square Garden. It's just going to be a joyous time. Yeah, you know, it dipped below 82 uh, over the weekend, and I, <laughs> I had to put on a long sleeve t-shirt out here in LA. It was rough, but look, enough hot weather talk, okay? Let's, uh, let's get into what was a fairly uh, busy and interesting weekend. Uh, in the NBA. And, you know, actually, it dates back to last week, just after we taped our episode, a, uh, you know, bubbling rivalry between James Harden and Giannis Adenokounmpo kind of blew up with uh, comments made by James Harden uh, in response to some of the daggers that Giannis had been throwing his way during All-Star Weekend. You'll remember, of course, at the All-Star Draft, Giannis made a, a little quip or a joke about how Harden wasn't really a passer. Then after the game, and I'm sure this is something that we highlighted on the podcast, Giannis basically laid out uh, his team's uh, late game offensive philosophy where they were just going to attack Harden no matter who was uh, he was guarding because he was the weakest defensive link on the court. Very unusual kind of out of turn comment from Giannis in what's obviously a, a showcase kind of setting environment uh, to be sort of calling out uh, you know a high profile opponent like that. But of course, their beef and, and back and forth dates back all the way to last season when Harden's campaigning kind of relentlessly for the MVP award that ultimately went to Giannis. And then over the summer, you know, he brings it up in, in multiple interviews, uh, basically saying that he got jobbed and, and Giannis only won because of the media narrative. So there's no question these two guys have, uh, you know, not seen eye to eye on a lot of things. But to me, Harden ramped this thing up in a big time way. Now he told friend of the program, Rachel Nichols of ESPN, uh, in a sit-down interview, he said this, I wish I could just run and be seven feet and just dunk. Like, that takes no skill at all. I got to <laughs> actually learn how to play basketball, how to have skill. I'd take that any day. So what Harden's essentially saying is like, yes, Giannis has amazing numbers. Yes, he won the MVP award uh, last year. Yes, his team is winning a crazy number of games. But none of it really matters because Giannis is blessed with these crazy physical gifts that other players uh, don't have. And of course, that's true. I mean, there's, there, he is the most dominant physical force in the league right now. Um, I'm curious, though, Michael, what do you make of Harden's criticism here? Is there any truth to what he's saying, I guess, philosophically in terms of uh, a skill debate between him and Giannis? And what did you make of the fallout? Because it did seem like this one struck a nerve across basketball Twitter. Everybody was weighing in. Yeah, this one kind of came out of left field, I guess, for, for me. Um, I mean, I, I definitely do not agree with Harden when he says that Giannis is not, not skilled. Uh, anyone who watches him play knows that he's kind of preternaturally skilled in a lot of ways. I mean, the jumper is not what it is. It's a little rigid and... A little mechanical, as you wrote uh, in your Washington Post email newsletter. Um, but great plug, love it. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> Everybody can subscribe sure. on my Twitter page. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Uh, and I mean, Giannis obviously also has wonderful timing and physical gifts that he unleashes on the defensive end, which is something that James Harden has never really done in his entire career. Um, that said, I kind of just. I felt bad for Harden after I watched the clip, and I wrote something about it for SB Nation that should be up tomorrow. Um, I mean, I kind of have sympathy for him, to be honest. Like, I, I, I look at Harden, and I see, I do not see a, a, as large of a gap between him and Giannis as I think, you know, NBA Twitter has, or I think a lot of league observers and league fans have. I see Harden as a superior scorer, a superior passer, a superior ball handler, a superior shooter. Uh, I think a lot of his game better translates to the postseason than Giannis's does, and a lot of Giannis's holes are not able to be uh, uh, taken advantage of by opposing teams in the regular season as they will in the playoffs. Um, 
And I just think that Harden is kind of fed up with not getting the credit that he has long, or I, I guess he has long deserved. Um, you know, he's been uh, a top three, top two MVP finisher for the past four or five years. Uh, he's, you know, his postseason travails have, have long been documented. And I kind of view it, have always viewed it as this guy just had really bad timing. Like he ran up against one of the greatest dynasties of all time. That's what his prime coincided against. And it's just, it's a bummer. Um, and I, I think he's kind of just fed up with not getting the credit that he's he seems to believe that he's due. And I personally would agree with him. Yeah, well, I agree with him on that part, too. Uh, here's the problem, though, Michael. He's riding the high horse, right? Because he has been unfairly maligned by trolls for years, right? He's been called every name in the book, a choker, which I think goes too far, uh, a ball hog, which certainly goes too far, a, a party animal. Everybody's going to laugh about his strip club habits on Reddit. Let's you know document his stats after going to cool cities with strip clubs. I mean, all this stuff is just basically nonsense, right? And... He's a very big and a very easy target. I think he does a lot of things that chafe people, and you know he contributes to the fact that he's a target. But ultimately, he's a way better and uh, more influential and more forward-thinking player than he's gotten credit for over the last five years. But the problem is he's riding that high horse, and he just puts it straight into the quicksand, and now he's slowly <laughs> sinking down to the level of of those same critics, Michael, because there is nothing that we can say about this commentary about Giannis other than Harden is trolling. And it's not even an effective troll. It's actually kind of a disgusting troll in some ways to try to say that this guy who has been certified as an MVP, a guy who built him up, built himself up from a raw teenager over the course of seven seasons in Milwaukee into one of the game's best all-around players, certainly a leading candidate as its best two-way player as being a guy who doesn't have skill. It's just an outrageous comment. It's reductive. It's demeaning. It's just as bad as a lot of the things that people have said about Harden over the years. And it's just a classic case here, Michael, of two wrongs don't make a right. Like, I understand you've been unfairly maligned. I do have sympathy for you. I think his comment about um, to Rachel Nichols about, oh, you know, I think history is going to judge me kindly. People will appreciate me when I'm gone. That was the saddest part of the whole interview because I don't think that's mm -hmm. true. <laughs> like, I, I think people mm. are going to be writing hard enough uh, when we get into the future unless he wins a title, unless he gets that validation as the type of player who can be forgotten or snubbed or passed over from a historical standpoint. So I just am disappointed in James Harden at this point. I know Houston and, and their front office, they love to engage in the trash talk. They love to stand up for themselves. And uh, I respect that about them. I just think they're very honest and upfront in when they feel aggrieved and expressing that and kind of rallying their fan base around that. So, you know, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. I just thought this went to a level that it shouldn't have gone to. And the difference here is that when Giannis was making his comment, especially about the, the passing, it was clearly in jest, right? And you watch these comments from Harden, it seems almost personal, like malicious, you know, when he's saying these things. And I just think it's a false dichotomy to say, okay, Harden is skilled and Giannis is not. I think when we talk about the glorified version of basketball skill, that's shooting and dribbling. That's what's in the uh, television commercials. That's what makes the highlight reels. You know, ankle breakers, uh, deep three-point range, all that stuff is definitely glorified. And in those categories, there's no question that Harden is better than Giannis in both of them. And there's no question that Harden is better than almost every NBA player ever in those categories. But that's not an accurate and comprehensive definition of what skill is in the NBA. And by trying to sort of use that framework to judge Giannis, you almost make him sound like he's a one-trick pony or he's like some you know, apprentice who's unsophisticated um, or he's a, a guy who's just a big lug and all he does is dunk. I mean, this is not, you know, uh, some bum center from the, the mid-1990s who's just like, you know, coasting along <laughs> on the hard work of his teammates. This is a guy who leads a top five offense as a scorer and as a passing playmaker, a guy who faces constant double and triple teams, a guy who gets hacked all the time. Um, a guy who is arguably the best defensive player in the entire league and leads the best defensive team, and a guy who's got his team on pace for 70 wins. I mean, come on. It's impossible for a player with that resume to be unskilled in the manner that 
uh, Harden is describing, or to only be getting by on his physical attributes, as Harden is describing. And that's why I think these are just bad faith arguments from Harden, and that's why I'm disappointed. I kind of, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. I don't think necessarily that Harden was just entirely frustrated with uh, with Giannis and with the comments that Giannis made comparing him to Kemba Walker and everyone laughing at him and all that. I, I think that there was a, I think the undercurrent of the sit down with Rachel Nichols towards the end, to me, it was kind of like Giannis is not Harden's opponent going forward. I think Harden's opponent going forward, number one is time. He does not have a lot of opportunities left to win a championship. And really the only thing that he can do that will uh, really separate him and really have him be remembered differently than he will be regardless of what else he does during the regular season is that title. And I think that this could be his last best chance to win a championship. You know, if they do not get to the finals or if they do not get to the conference finals, like we don't know what the Houston Rockets are going to look like next season. They probably won't have the same head coach. Who knows where Westbrook will be? Who knows where that supporting cast will be and the kind of style that they've played to get to where they were and how hot they've played throughout the regular season the last month or so. Uh, Daryl Morey might be gone, who's been the architect of everything and who brought Harden to Houston. Uh, so I, th- I just think that, you know, he senses his basketball mortality. And he did a really interesting uh, interview with uh, Howard Beck of Bleacher Report before the season began, you know, talking about turning 30 and, and you know, there not being a lot of time left to make the, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so uh, I kind of thought that that was the big thing weighing on Harden's mind more than anything else. He doesn't have a lot of time left and he doesn't have a lot of opportunity and his, his career is, I mean, he's still in the apex right now, but, you know, the opportunities and the chances to win championships are only so few and far between, and this could be it for him. Yeah, I, I respect that uh, opinion. I'm not sure that influences his comment- commentary here in any way. I don't care how desperate you are to win a title. I don't think that <laughs> was that a stretch. I hear you on all of that, especially the mortality part. I mean, he's reached such highs, and those highs have come from such incredibly heavy burdens, a taxing style of play, huge usage rate, et cetera, et cetera, that it's absolutely reasonable for him to see his window closing at some point down the road, especially as they've already shaken up their core and kind of rotated their roster multiple times. You know, at some point you think like, hey, is it ever going to work for us? And the other aspect I've always appreciated about him is he is so resolute in his belief that he's going to win a title, no matter how many times people say you're never going to do it, your style can't win or whatever else. He always answers in interviews that he believes he's going to win one. It's just a matter of time, right? So um, I get for sure that the clock is ticking. Um, but look, the clock is ticking on all of us, Michael. I just don't think you denigrate <laughs> one of your rivals in this same manner. I'm not sure if that's an excuse that lets him off the hook. I mean, it just to really kind of hop up on the high horse, I thought it was interesting to dive into this skill conversation. This is what I wrote about in my newsletter. I went back and found this list that James Naismith put together in 1892. And the list is basically a rundown of all the mental and physical attributes that you have to have if you want to be a successful basketball player, right? And so he actually had skill as uh, called out on that list, but he also had agility, accuracy, alertness, cooperation, initiative, reflex judgment, speed, self-sacrifice, self-confidence, self-control, and sportsmanship. So first of all, he kind of nailed this list, man. Like, can you imagine? I mean, it it kind of, to me, it's like reading uh, the Declaration of Independence or some of the other documents from like the founding fathers is like, yo, how did they know? Like, did they have some oracle seeing into the future about like what was going to matter because it it holds up so well, like, you know, 130 years later or whatever. Um, But when you go down that list of characteristics and say, okay, how many of these does Giannis have? How many of these does Harden have? Who wins each category? I, to me, Giannis checks every single one of those boxes. You know, accuracy, okay, he is obviously not the world's best three-point shooter, so you ding him on that one. But the rest of them that I just said, he nails all of them. And with Harden, I think you've got some questions when it comes to things like self-sacrifice, sportsmanship, uh, you know, and, and down the cooperation. I mean, those things are at least questionable to a certain degree, right? So if we're saying— Can I, can I push back for two seconds, Ben? Please. 
Yeah, so, I mean, when it comes to self-sacrifice, I do feel like, particularly this season, what we've seen out of Harden playing with, you know, the brush fire that is Russell Westbrook and letting Westbrook pretty much take over and, at times, assume the controls of the entire team, I will say that that is pretty impressive. Like, I don't know how many superstars could coexist, let alone thrive, besides someone like Russell Westbrook in that environment. So I just want to just want to note that real quick, because I think that that is an accomplishment. It is. But come on, Michael, this is coming in the context where he just <laughs> he just drove Chris Paul out of town straight to Oklahoma City. Like he hired the Hertz rental truck and he packed up Chris's house. I mean, come on, like he's got a track record here that's not saying he's the most team first leader and I think certainly when you look at his best statistical individual moments it's come at his teammates expense you know there there's really no question I mean the usage rates are so out of control the shot attempt numbers are so high that it has trended into an unhealthy balance and it's come back to bite them at times it's not to say he's a selfish player I'm not saying that I would never call him a ball hog and I would actually say that his style of play is unfairly maligned overall by especially by the casual fan but if we're saying Mm -hmm. do i have to pick one of these guys in terms of who is better at self-sacrifice i'm taking Giannis over harden on that category and and a lot of these other categories too initiative you know i understand that harden has worked through some tough spots in his career to take his game to even higher levels i'm not sure there's a better example of basketball initiative in the history of the sport than Giannis. And that's something that I've been saying for two years. And he just keeps raising the bar year after year with how he commits himself to improving and taking his game to the next level. So um, this is not meant to be a, a big time debate between, okay, who's the, the better player or who is even the more skilled player. It's just to reinforce this idea that both players are incredibly skilled. And for one to try to knock the other as unskilled, it's unfair. It's It's out of bounds to me. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I also think just when we kind of view them with, you know, a big picture lens, Harden has baggage. He has five years on Giannis in terms of age. And and I think that, you know, Giannis is kind of set forth. He has one disappointing playoff performance that happened last year. And uh, I, I think that a lot of people assume that a lot of flaws in his game will be course corrected and that he'll eventually win a championship. And I do think that that factors into how he's perceived. Whereas with Harden, we kind of don't, I mean, we don't give him the benefit of the doubt at all. We'd still, uh, you know, look at what he has been unable to accomplish in Houston and just kind of see that as par for the course with him, which I, I just personally think is a little unfair to him. Um, so I just want to also say that, and I know that I'm sticking up for Harden quite a bit, but it's, I just, <laughs> that's my guy. I, I, I just, I think that a lot of the, the narrative that has surrounded him for the, 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 the glib of his prime have, has been pretty just unfair. And I, I know that I'm saying that in a conversation where I disagree with just about everything that he said. And I, 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 was really surprised that he went there with Giannis like that. But I do think that there's just, I don't think that this is just about Giannis, as I already said. I think that this is a lot about the, the criticisms that he has faced unfairly throughout his career. Right. And that's what frustrated me. It's the two wrongs don't make a right thing. It's like, I'm so sick of everyone mm-hmm. demeaning me for five or six straight years. I'm going to demean another player in the same manner. Right. And look, I'm sure he can justify in his mind by saying, okay, Giannis took some shots that were across the line. I could hear that. The first one to me was definitely joking. Um, and the second one, I think, is something that Harden has to live with in terms of, okay, you know, from a defensive attacking standpoint, in an all-star game format, of course you're going to attack Harden rather than Anthony Davis, LeBron James, uh, and Kawhi Leonard on that particular roster, right? So it's not like Giannis came out and said Harden is the worst defensive player in the league. I mean, that would be the equivalent of of kind of what Harden had said about Giannis here in this interview. So um, I think that we've we've covered this rivalry uh, in full, but I do want to ask you quick follow-up questions. Which one of these guys wins the title first? And will this <laughs> will this debate wind up being kind of a touch point that we look back on? Like, for example, I can envision a scenario where Giannis wins the title this year and it almost gets framed in this idea of here he is rising out of this criticism that he's unskilled and it's this crowning achievement for him. Or for Harden, if their small ball were to work and were to deliver a title, and I would actually have to go out there and buy a Westbrook jersey and mail it to one of our listeners, um, which I promised to do, and autograph the tag, 
uh, I could see this debate wind up being a big part of that narrative too. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this could be an inflection point. You're you're definitely right. I mean, especially if Giannis wins the championship, it kind of reminds me of like, uh, uh, do you remember when when Kanye West and Fifty Cent were arguing over whose album they were? Their albums were releasing on the same day. I believe it was graduation. I can't remember what Fifty Cent's album was, and it was a bet about uh, whose album would sell more copies. And uh, Kanye won handily. And completely outsold 50 Cent and 50 Cent's career just kind of plummeted from that point forward and Kanye uh, elevated to a different height. So I I think that that could be where we're at. And I think age does definitely have a factor in in this in the matter of the argument for sure. as a as, well, uh, just speaking about who if we're going to be making Kanye West analogies, isn't the proper analogy here? Uh, Harden going on stage and saying, Giannis, you can run and dunk, but I'm one of the most skilled players of all time and kind of treating Giannis as uh, Taylor Swift in this Giannis, I'm going to let you finish. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. Giannis, I'm going to let you finish. You can run and dunk, but I'm one of the most skilled players of all time. And frankly, I think that it worked because I responded like millions of Swifties everywhere, just completely <laughs> angry on Giannis's behalf. So I guess <laughs> congratulations to the provocateur, James Harden. So, <laughs> so to answer the question about who I think is going to win the championship first, I mean, I'm... I'm feeling even more bullish, I got to say, about the Rockets based on the February that they had. And I know we're going to talk about them more in depth in a little bit, but the way they've played since the trade deadline and how they've looked with their small lineups has been super impressive. And I feel more confident, honestly, uh, heading into the playoffs with them as my pick to win win it all. Um, Love it. Double down, triple down. This is going to make the podcast so much more fun as we see this uh, whole thing play out because I watched the Clippers play two pretty impressive games over the weekend, and I was sitting there Mm -hmm. licking my lips thinking, man, I cannot wait until they lock up the Rockets and make Michael look bad. (laughs) I mean, that's entirely possible. Uh, And then we have, you know, the Bucks are looking just ridiculous right now as well so uh i mean i'm just gonna say the rockets because i'm not gonna back down on my prediction but like if you gave me truth serum i i don't know what i would say yeah i hear you i'm gonna go with Giannis and the bucks on this one but um i do think like you said it's an inflection point both ways uh last thing on this then we'll move on dunking especially in this era requires a lot of skill i mean you watch some of these dunks that Giannis does when he's facing up, going through three defenders, spin move pirouette, through the paint, carefully planting steps, avoiding the charge calls, rising up over the help defender, finishing in the rim. When you go against Milwaukee, your entire game plan, take away the rim from Giannis. The teams that have success against him, whether it was Boston early in the playoff series last year, whether it was Toronto in the Eastern Conference Finals, the whole focus of everything they do take Giannis away from the rim and then figure it out from there and the fact that he can so effortlessly get to the rim through all sorts of different defenses finish with authority finish through contact and everything else it takes a lot of skill footwork balance speed power and um you know come on man let's let's not be uh let's not be undercutting Giannis's value here in the league Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Now, 
we did have some news over the weekend, Michael. I hear you chuckling at me because you clearly this is passionate. I am. Come on, man. Like <laughs> yeah. Giannis Inc. hasn't been under this kind of attack in years. And uh, look, we're handling it better than the coronavirus response, but not that much better. So it's uh, it's certainly something that we're we're working with on the fly. But um, I, Ben, I was actually expecting more fire out of you. I gotta say. Well, I try to keep it balanced here when when the subject gets serious. Like if I have to invoke Naismith, you know, I can't exactly be ranting and raving. <laughs> now look. Uh, Kevin Durant's longtime business manager, Rich Kleiman, told me over the weekend it's a possibility that Kevin Durant plays in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Now, Durant's name was included in the player pool. I think it was 44 players that got released last month by USA Basketball. Um, Of course, there's questions about the Olympics in general because of that coronavirus that I just mentioned. But uh, I guess philosophically, uh, Michael, when we're looking at how you handle this rehabilitation, this return for Kevin Durant, and you're in Brooklyn, so I know you're just frothing at the mouth, hoping that Kevin Durant comes back as soon as possible. How would you handle this return for him? Would you let him participate with Team USA Basketball? I mean, maybe you wouldn't play huge minutes. You know, maybe he's just kind of got a token role, uh, goes along, sells some sneakers for Nike, and you know, brings some attention to that team. Remember, he's already won two Olympic gold medals. Um, or would you shut him down and save him for training camp? Uh, which side of this uh, you know, this uh, conceptual uh, battle are you on? I mean, if I'm Sean Marks in the Brooklyn Nets, I would do everything in my power short of upsetting him to keep him from going to Japan. Well, here, I, here's I, the problem, though, Michael. Do they have any power? Do they have any leverage? Absolutely not. I mean, they just handed, <laughs> no, their, they do not. They handed their entire franchise over to them, and they spent the entire year looking like a joke. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, what's the point of the Brooklyn Nets at this point without Kevin Durant, right? So it, Sean Mark says, hey, KD, uh, first of all, my name's Sean. I'm not sure if you remember me. Uh, <laughs> please don't go to the Olympics. Are you even taking the phone call? Come on. No, I, I I do not disagree with you there, but I mean I'm just saying if I were the Nets, I would be petrified of him going. You just you don't know what could happen. Anything can. This is a very serious injury. Uh, you know, obviously there are clips that have emerged of him at the practice facility. He looks really good. Um, I don't think he's you know he's not capable of playing in an NBA game today, but he looks. He looks very impressive physically, and uh, you know if he's healthy enough to play in the Olympics, then that's wonderful. I would still just be a nervous wreck if I was anyone in the Brooklyn Nets organization. You know, the slightest setback could be just absolutely devastating to you as an organization. And as you said, he already has two gold medals. I don't really know what his, um, you know, what his desire is, is to get a third or if he wants to be like the all-time leading scorer in the history of Team USA basketball or if anything like that really matters to him. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that also it could be also just in his own best interest uh, as an NBA player and looking at his career down the line. I think a, a summer of rest uh, and maybe even more rehabilitation in whatever form that that takes place with a torn Achilles would be the best route for him to get ready for another 82-game season. But who knows? I, 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 I just, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I won't I, I wouldn't enjoy watching him in the Olympics because he's one of the most entertaining players who's ever lived, but I would much, 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 much rather him play a healthy season with the Brooklyn Nets. I'll say it, Michael. I would not enjoy watching him playing in the Olympics because I wouldn't be able to keep my eyes open. I would be sitting there just fretting like a nervous wreck, thinking, what is the possible upside of this? It's all downside. Now, just for context, the Olympics would start 13 months after his injury. So that's a reasonable amount of time to be fully recovered from an Achilles. But the following season wouldn't start until closer to like 16 or 17 months. I'd feel a lot more comfortable with that timeline. You know what I mean? I'd feel like, okay, he can get all the way as close as he's possibly going to get to 100%. Uh, It's the abundance of caution approach, right? That's how I would handle it. I would not have him play in the Olympics. I think that in general... You know, floating this kind of a thing out there or being a part of the player pool, it's kind of a win-win for everybody, right? It reminds people that uh, the Olympics are coming up. It helps keep a positive buzz around the team. It helps remind people that Kevin Durant still exists, which is, you know, a challenge when you're away from the game for an entire year. Um, And it's just, you know, it's good PR, I think, in general to at least kind of get these conversations going. And if he's really serious about playing and he's got his heart set on playing, then you better start 
you know, laying some breadcrumbs early. Otherwise, you're going to have everybody shocked this summer and saying, dude, what's wrong with you? So um, I understand why this would be their public approach early. Of course, it's a long way off. There's a lot of things that he's got to get through from his rehabilitation standpoint. Um, I'm just hoping that uh, the deliberate approach wins out. I know everybody's frustrated right now in Golden State because Steph Curry still hasn't come back. I mean, ultimately, come on. Like, what is the the reward versus the possible risk here? I would say just take it as slow as possible. And, um, you know, everybody just double back next season and we're going to have a great time with the stars back in the mix. All right, Michael, we're going to shift gears to a Saturday night spectacular game between the Boston Celtics and the Houston Rockets. I feel like this game was right in your wheelhouse. Two teams that you follow closely um, and arguably have family members on the rosters with Jason Tatum and James Harden. Uh, We got an email uh, to the open floor inbox at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Tom writes, currently I'm listening to uh, Michael Pina melt about Jason Tatum while I'm on the London Underground, and I couldn't agree more. My question is, how does this Celtics team win a ring? If Tatum is like an elite version of Paul George and he keeps it consistent, what do the Celtics need to put next to him and Jalen Brown to take the top honors? What moves can they make uh, take to win next year? So he's already kind of dreaming about that 2021 title. So Michael, I guess, first of all, um, after seeing this kind of high-profile showdown with the Rockets, it goes to overtime and Houston barely ekes it out. I mean, how are you feeling? Like, what percentage chance would you give, uh, say, Boston to win a title this year? And then what's your roadmap for next year if you're trying to build, uh, you know, to to increase that percentage heading into that 2021 playoffs? Yeah, I mean, that game was awesome. I I just want to say even the the Celtics lost in in overtime. Um, I mean, percentage chance to win the championship this season, I... I think they should be considered a legitimate contender. I don't know exactly what what number I would put on it. Like, I don't know, between five and ten percent, maybe. Is that is that too high? Would you say? Five uh, percent sounds a little bit more reasonable. Ten percent sounds like you know you're drunk on that green Sam Adams. <laughs> All right, so that's fair. Uh, I'll give them five percent chance, which is that's pretty high. Um, all things considered, in a thirty team league. Um, you know, I, I to answer this question, like, I mean, they are built to win the championship right now. You have Kemba, who's, you know, he's got a knee thing right now, but he's an all-star point guard. You know, Marcus Smart is an all-defensive team member who can run a pick-and-roll, shoot threes, and generally exist as an ideal role player. Jalen's coming into his own. Tatum's made the leap. So, I, I, I what can be done next season? Like, I, I guess just, like, roll it back, maybe hope Gordon Hayward opts into his contract and uh, so you don't have to worry about his free agency and then hope everybody stays healthy. Like that's, like I don't really look at this roster and see any glaring weaknesses. Tatum will be a year older. Jalen will be a year older. Um, I I, I don't know. Like I I don't see, I mean, you want to add shooting maybe with your mid-level exception, but like I... I don't, I don't know. I, there's really nothing glaring on the roster that really needs improvement. They're already a championship contender. So, I mean, do, am I off base here? No. Am I looking through the, the green goggles? No, no. I, I mean, it's an organic build situation for sure. Anytime you have a player who's like 21, 22, and is breaking out as like a top 10 or top 15 level talent, once he's hitting his prime, like we're starting to feel like, okay, that's what his destiny is in Jason Tatum. Uh, I think the temptation is to like fast forward everything and, and rush to that moment. And I think even some of the conversations about Tatum here over the last couple of weeks have gotten ahead of themselves in terms of where he's being ranked, <laughs> you know, on certain lists and how ready he is and all that. It's like, guys, it's the most natural reaction in the world for the pro Boston media to go absolutely nuts when they finally have a good player to celebrate, right? But um, just pump the brakes and chill look at the Tatum era as like a seven-year time period from this moment going forward, right? I mean, you're going to have some real opportunities to build around him, to work around him. It's a fantastic landing spot for him from a marketing standpoint. He's already got a Jordan Brand sneaker deal. He's going to get into some, uh, you know, I'm sure a national advertising campaign type conversations here as we go forward for major products. There's not going to be a big rush out of town like there is in some organizations for guys who are kind of in that second contract window. Um, so if you're Boston, you know, you've got time to work with. 
especially because he's not your only young talent who's improving uh, Browns there as well. I would ride out the Kemba thing for a while. Of any of their big salaried players currently, who I think could actually be like, you know, the odd man out going forward, I would guess it would be Hayward. But he looks like a player to me where you're not going to really be able to get fair value or better value in a, a trade with him. So I think for the most part, um, this is going to be the team for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it right there, it's particularly with Jalen. And I think it was really prudent of the Celtics to sign him to the four-year extension that they did that will run through 2024. And then, you know, you lock up Tatum, presumably on the five-year max this fall. The one player, actually, that I would I would push back a little bit about Kemba, you know, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a coincidence that Tatum has made this leap with Kemba out. And I, I'm not saying that they are better without Kemba Walker, who, uh, you know, started the All-Star game and has been terrific when healthy. But I do think it's really interesting on the defensive end, uh, particularly, you know, in as they make a deep playoff run, what they do with Kemba and whether or not they will explore, pending what happens in this postseason, whether or not they will explore his value on the market. And I'm not saying that they should trade Kemba, but when I just look around, like someone like Drew Holiday would fit so much better at that slot. Where someone where you can literally switch one through five and not worry about your weakest link, because in the playoffs you're only as strong as your weakest defender. So uh, I think that that has been uh, a little. That could be an angle for them to improve at some point. But again, like Kemba is terrific. So I don't want to, you know, go too deep into this suggestion that they're better off without him and that they should move him. But if I'm just looking at the roster right now, that is the one piece where uh, defensively you could have some issues in a playoff series. Agent of chaos, Michael Pina, trying to blow up the good vibes and send <laughs> Kemba Walker out of town. I kind of love it. Hey, let's switch gears to the other side of that game, though, because we got a bunch of questions in here uh, from uh, people asking about Houston. And I love the format of these questions because uh, Virgil comes through and writes, we can finally admit Westbrook is amazing and a plus contributor to Houston's wins now, right? And Kevin writes, it pains me to say this, but this super small Rockets <laughs> commitment around Russell Westbrook is really working, isn't it? So there's a lot of people, Michael, who are sort of in this mental flux, wrapping their mind around what Westbrook likes uh, looks like in Houston's new strategic setup, you know, with a five out, playing P.J. Tucker at center, um, even Jeff Green at center uh, at times, keeping the floor completely spaced and just letting Russell and, and Harden go to work. Um, I think Virgil asked some follow-up questions. He basically says, like, why did we not see this from Westbrook before? Do we blame Sam Presti? Was Westbrook just not ready? Or is Harden the X factor here? Does he change defenses in a way that maybe Durant didn't? Um, what do you think? Uh, how would you respond to Virgil and Kevin who are, you know, trying to say like, wait a minute, what am I seeing? Like Westbrook's actually effective and like happy and like winning games. What's going on here? I mean, before the season began, I wrote a story about the relationship between Westbrook and Harden and how it could work. And why I, I was I was pretty optimistic that it would, and that was basically just that the Rockets have shooters, and the Thunder didn't. You know, the Thunder have had Stephen Adams and Patrick Patterson, and a worse version of Dennis Schroeder, Nerlens Noel, Terrence Ferguson. They didn't have guys who, you know, you would force their man to hug up on them on the perimeter like the Rockets do. So that right there is it in a nutshell to me. Um, you know, uh, I think last season in particular, Paul George had some injury, uh, shoulder problems that he needed to have surgery on, and, and that was a, a factor in his poor play in the postseason. But, like, the driving lanes just weren't even close to what they are. I mean, since the trade uh, at the deadline for Robert Covington and their decision to really aggressively go small with Tucker at the five, like, Westbrook's taking 25 shots a night, averaging 35 points a game shooting 57% from the floor. Like, he's the most explosive player in the league right now, which I never thought I would say again. And that's just all driving lanes. It really is. And so it's 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 also like, uh, well, I, I mean, the, the Thunder did try to play and, and get out in space, and their defensive game plan was basically to trap and create havoc and force turnovers. And the 
Rockets don't even really need to do that. They're just kind of grab and go. Uh, and so that's really, like personnel is really basically the, the, the big change, I think. Like, do you agree, Ben? Is that like really the really only yeah. reason for this? Well, I think it's very important to say, look, this is not about Westbrook having some big revelation. It's about the system being completely turned upside down from the Oklahoma City days in the half-court offense, right? I mean, they were always playing with a big center uh, in Oklahoma City. The only time they weren't, it was a guy like Ibaka, where for most of his best years, he's kind of stretching to the mid-range. And he eventually was able to stretch out at the three-point line, but that really came later and in heavier doses. And he wasn't as mobile to this idea where you can just switch everything and uh, you know station everybody outside the paint. There's always bodies in the paint there in Oklahoma City. They would always have, you know, invariably two non-shooters on the court in addition to Westbrook because they always had wings that couldn't shoot and they always had a traditional center, right? So just the vast difference in space between the Oklahoma City framework that Westbrook was operating in, um, even when he had the elite wings to kind of balance him with Paul George and, and Kevin Durant versus what Houston's trying to do, it's night and day. I think that... You know, this is like the purest form of Westbrook that we've ever seen, right? Because the green light is as green as it's ever been, but he's also being pointed in the right direction, right? He's not being sent into, uh, you know, this pile of bodies, this like rugby scrum in the middle of the paint. He's being sent into an ocean of room where he can kind of attack guys. And he's often getting to do it against, you know, favorable switches and, and matchup issues, right? Like, I mean, their offense puts you into binds and it is really good at highlighting whoever your worst and least versatile defender is and, and attacking on that person. And, and when Westbrook finds himself in that situation, he doesn't need to be told twice. He just goes and does it. So um, it has been very fun. And I, I don't say that lightly to watch Westbrook play here the last month and a half. He is a player who I've liked watching less than almost anyone else in the entire league because of his decision-making uh, and because of the blinders that he would get on uh, you know, and, and the other aspects that we've kind of been over ad nauseum. And this setup, it just masks his weaknesses more than almost any other. Now, that being said, I'm not completely convinced that this is going to hold up uh, throughout the playoffs against the very best elite defenses. Uh, I think that they could pose some real matchup issues for the Lakers uh, in the Western Conference. But I think that the Clippers still, to me, are the team that's sort of best suited to defend Houston. I think if, if you're in a, a series where there's just no centers, uh, really like traditional centers playing at all, I think I would rather have, you know, Montrez Harrell and Marcus Morris, uh, you know, plus the Clippers wings, you know, they're, they're two very elite wings who can definitely both guard Harden and Westbrook in certain scenarios with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, then I would, uh, want to have Houston's offense I don't know where do you come down on that one like in that particular matchup yeah I've thought about this quite a bit because you know as you know just about every team that has faced the Rockets so far has decided to just put their five instead of you know pulling their five and putting him on the bench they've thrown him on Westbrook because he's the worst shooter on the team so and you're, you're just yeah go ahead Michael, let me say that was my idea as soon as they started doing this I floated that out there as my magical solution I thought I was really special for coming up with that <laughs> everyone has done it and it has worked for basically no one so back to the drawing board <laughs> yeah I was about to say that exactly like Westbrook has challenged uh, those centers at the rim and either gotten to the free throw line or, or gone through them he's just been that ridiculously athletic uh, so when I look at the Clippers, it's really interesting because you know they obviously have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I, I, I mean, if you're if you're them, do you just switch everything and kind of play to uh, to Houston's ISO ball style and just think that your individual talent can beat them on that end, and then also punish them on the offensive side of the ball? Or do you like st tell Paul George like, hey, your job for this series is to stick to Russell Westbrook like glue? Like, what what is the what is the objective there? What what is the strategy? Well, I think you try to have your main guys match up on their main guys as much as possible, right? Because ultimately, if you're the Clippers, you're betting that you're going to win this series with your depth. You're betting that you know the minutes where only one of Houston stars are on your rock solid second unit. And the ability to have only one of your stars on the court, they're going to have more talent around them in those minutes. Those minutes you're going to win. That's how you win the series. I think that's basically your philosophy, right? So you want to 
line up your stars with them and encourage them to have as many one-on-one matchups as possible. But like I said, I mean, this is going to be a heavy switching series. It's just going to be impossible for either team to, you know, stick to that in sort of an idealized way because the ball just moves, bodies move. There's going to have to be lots and lots of switching. And then once those uh, stars get switches, I mean, Harden and Westbrook are just relentless. You know, as soon as they get the guy they want, you know, they have all the room in the world to do it. They're so well conditioned at this point to get there. They don't hesitate. They just attack. And, uh, you know, again, that's why I like the Clippers in that particular matchup, though, because I think in their best lineups, their weakest defender is still a really good defender. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And I mean, just going back to that game against the Celtics on uh, on Saturday night, like, Harden was just trying to abuse Gordon Hayward over and over again. I mean, Gordon Hayward's not like a bad defender or anything. That's what the Rockets do. They set ball screens with the opponent's worst defender and or or at least whoever Harden is most comfortable attacking. And so, you know, there are ways to kind of switch out of that, but it's very complicated and it takes a lot of discipline, even in a playoff series where everybody's locked in and focused. So, I mean, one other thing just real quick about Westbrook and how unbelievable he has been and kind of what has opened the path there is like he's not even close, in my opinion, to being the best offensive player on his own team as well as he's played. Like Harden is just such a monster. So, I mean, the the, the Clippers are really unique in that they obviously have Kawhi who is, you know, a defensive player of the year candidate. Uh, He's not going to win, but that's what he is at his apex. And you have Paul George. So it's very unique. But like almost any other team, uh, it's just going to be really, really, really difficult to slow those guys down because Harden is just such a monster and has been all season long. I mean, he's shooting 38.2% from behind the three-point line on step backs this year. Like just absolutely ridiculous so i i michael i think that they're still gonna get but can you hear that noise can you hear that noise in the distance it might just be the sound of nerves from the los angeles lakers wondering how they're gonna deal with these guys in a playoff series can you hear it oh i mean oh honestly like is if they're the lakers you need anthony davis to just like rise up and dominate in that series right like that he has to be your kind of x-factor player how confident are you going to get that version of anthony davis in a series knowing that who your personnel is going to be to guard Harden um, or Westbrook. I mean, LeBron's not going to be very helpful in those defensive matchups, right? He's going to have to be used as a help defender, uh, probably guarding P.J. Tucker or, you know, Robert Covington. And that leaves, you know, guys like Danny Green, Caruso to handle those big-time responsibilities. And if I'm Harden and Westbrook in that scenario, I'm feeling a lot better about going against those players than I am about Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, 100%. And then the other thing is that Harden and Westbrook are going to be playing, like, what, uh, 40 minutes a night in the playoffs? Like, it's just going to be, and one of them will always be on the court. So it's just going to be such a slog. And uh, the more I talk about this, the more happy I am about my pick and how smart I will look <laughs> if they actually do pull it off. <laughs> it's going to be an incredible call if you if you get this right somehow. I, I don't see it happening. But, uh, you know, they just need somebody to take the Clippers out, and then they've got a pretty interesting path to it. Hey, Michael, let's shift gears here uh, for the end of the podcast by just, you know, cleaning up some more emails that we got into the open floor mailbox. And I think people were um, excited about a few different conversations we had, but particularly this idea of the Hall of Legends. And uh, you'll remember we were talking about who gets a statue or, you know, can we have a more selective Hall of Fame so that it really only honors, like, the um, the true greats. And Nate pointed out, Michael, that your top 24 players that you had in your Hall of Legends were almost identical to his own personal list. And he had gone through this formula and everything else he sent it over. It was pretty phenomenal. But he asked a a major question. Where was Dr. J? How do you feel about ABA legends and what's their place in basketball history? And then we also got an email from Donde in, in the Philippines who said, Dr. J's case is pretty simple, man. Four MVPs from the NBA and ABA combined, 16 All-Star games, two All-Star game MVPs, a title, a nine-time All-NBA or All-ABA first-team selection. And he adds, Dr. J was the basketball superstar of the 70s, transcended the hardwood, was an icon on and off the court. Countless stories of basketball superstars looking up to him when they were growing up. So this was a pretty uh, big omission by both of us, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so I I swear to God that I had Dr. J in my honorable mentions when I wrote down my list. He, he did not make it, though. I believe um, you, because why would you lie? 
exactly. It's uh, <laughs> why would I lie, Ben? Um, I will say that you know I did not put him on the the top twenty four and and make it a top twenty five for a, a couple of reasons, and maybe I'm wrong about them. But uh, for one, I just think that the the ABA kind of complicates things a bit. Now he wasn't there for the bulk of his career or anything like that, but he did spend the early parts of his prime there, and that's where he had his most success. So it's just it's really difficult to kind of parse the ABA competition. And now I, I know that it was top notch in a lot of ways, but you know the depth was uh, an issue there, and 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 so forth. But uh, the other thing is just like you know, as my rule was that you know I needed guys who were top three players for three or more years, and I. I didn't think that Dr. J was clearly that. Like, I, to be to make the list, you had to be just obviously a top three player, and there couldn't really be any second guessing it, or else it would defeat the purpose of the exercise. And so that's why I did not have him on. Now, maybe I'm I'm incorrect there, and and it is obvious. I was not alive at the time, so I could not like go from my own recesses of my memory. I was basically just looking at statistical history books. Uh, so that's just where I was coming from, where when I tried to figure things out. But I just will say real quick, like, you know, just from reading about NBA history and basketball history, like Dr. J was one of the most influential players of his era. And he was kind of like the bridge to Michael Jordan, MJ before MJ. So he, he, you know, he is a legend in his own right, but I just wasn't sure if he passed necessarily with my criteria. No, I, I hear you. Well, we got another question on this same subject from Noam. And he writes, I love the Hall of Legends and Statue Garden idea, but uh, you guys left Dirk off. I think he should get a statue because you have to consider statue ability. He had the perfect statue pose. Could you guys rate your top five NBA statues, not necessarily existing ones already, and then Noam closes, I know this is right in your wheelhouse, Ben. Well, Noam, you know me so well. Uh, I bring this question up right now, though, is doesn't Dr. J have a very, very high statue ability ranking, Michael? I mean, that swooping layup underneath the hoop where he's got like his arm extended and he's holding the basketball like it's a grapefruit. And that's a statue right there, right? I mean, that's iconic. Everybody would recognize it. And I feel like we should just commission that today. That's a great one. Him taking off from the free throw line would be amazing. Uh, yeah, that's that's great. And and I I mean I had Dirk on my. You tried to take Dirk off the my Hall of Legends list, but he was there for, for the for the end. But uh, oh, I, I throw also, me under the bus. Thanks, You're sucking <laughs> up to uh, sucking up to Noam. I see how it is. Well, which other guys do you think have st- high statue ability? And Noam's got a point. I mean, the Dirk fadeaway. That's why they put the silhouette on the court down there in Dallas, right? I mean, remember that they had that little icon logo on the court of course, this season yeah. to pay respect to that look. But uh, you know, which other guys do you think make that list? I mean, LeBron's block is oh. that's a statue that needs to happen yeah that should just be like city hall in cleveland like i don't even know i don't even know if we can claim this one in uh in our statue garden we might have to give that to ohio yeah that should be like rocky balboa except uh, a actual human being or um, or maybe at like cleveland the, the governor's mansion or something like that you know like I, <laughs> we have to just like ramp this one up you know yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I I love Jordan's statue outside the United Center. I think it's incredible. I'm sure that it's like your favorite thing that has ever been constructed in human history. I, I also think that maybe he deserves another one where it's like the, you know, that great final shot against the Utah Jazz. Like, I feel like that shot deserves its own Ooh, statue. Just him holding his follow through or yeah, maybe him brushing Brian Russell off like he's just a speck of dust on his shoulder, you know? Um I think that the statue for Jordan, though, at the Hall of Statues, shouldn't that be the iconic photo from the dunk contest where he's got the ball like kind of tucked back by his ear and he's he's going into the spread eagle with his legs? He's kind of like double pumping. You know that photo from like underneath the hoop, uh, the iconic Walter Eos photo? I think that's the one that needs to be the, the statue there. Do you have any other uh, major nominations? Uh, I love the block idea. Um, what else? What about like Kareem with the sky hook? Is that too boring? Or what about Wilt Chamberlain? That's pretty... <laughs> with the with the one hundred with the one hundred sign, maybe. 
Yeah, those are good. Uh, I think the big one for me is uh, Kevin Garnett in a primal scream form, just looking at the sky, screaming anything as possible. Is that? Do you think that's a good statue idea, Ben? It's not bad. I mean, we could have Giannis actually inside Harden's head. That would be a good statue. How about that? <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, let me see here. We got a couple other questions uh, that came in. Actually, I love this one. This was from Eton in Israel. And he had a real beef with the story you told on the last episode, uh, Michael. So you need to clarify this, all right? Eton writes, um, Michael told a story about how his sister-in-law's boyfriend uh, was watching the NBA with him, and he didn't know anything about the game. He was watching Pelicans versus Lakers, and his eyes were glued on Zion. My question is, why weren't his eyes glued on LeBron? After all, LeBron is one of the greatest players ever, and he was going off for 40 points in that same game. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, yes, Zion had some great dunks, but so did LeBron. Please explain this, Michael. So how do you explain um, your novice family members' uh, snubbing of LeBron in favor of Zion during that uh, much-anticipated showdown uh, in L.A. Uh, a week ago, which was actually had round two uh, in New Orleans on Sunday. Again, very entertaining. Both guys got their numbers. They did hug on the court, by the way, Michael. So maybe they heard us, you know, whispering and chattering here on the podcast (laughs) and decided to play nice for the cameras. Um, But please, can you uh, straighten this all out? No, I mean, maybe I did mischaracterize it a tad, but... I gave a blanket statement at the start of the game that was like, hey, this is this is a great game because Zion is Zion, and I hyped him up, and then I said, hey, this is LeBron, he's the best player in 30 years, yada, 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 but I just, I, w- I think the emailer has it, like, spot on in my brain is what I was thinking, which is like, I'm not, I mean, I'm always excited to watch LeBron play basketball, but he was not the big hook of why this game mattered so much. It was more that it was Zion facing off against LeBron for the first time. And it was like Zion's like, what, 13th game of his career or something like that. And every time you see him, you see something that you've never seen a human being do before. So that's really what I was selling him on more so than LeBron, because I personally, I mean, relatively speaking to Zion, like, you know, I've seen LeBron do it all. Like, he wasn't going to wow me. I mean, he did kind of wow me in that game, but he wasn't going to wow me to the the level of something that Zion could do, knowing that I've seen LeBron do, you know, ridiculous things over and over and over again for basically the bulk of my adulthood. Well, isn't part of this, though, that Zion can do things that even LeBron can't do? I mean, obviously, he can't do everything that LeBron can do, but with some of these dunks and the force and the power... I think he still does pop off the screen, even when he's going against players like LeBron or or even in his matchup against Giannis. Yeah, and it's also like (laughs) the the things that LeBron does, you know, I think a lot of them are easy to, to spot. Anyone can see when he does something really good during a game, but a lot of it is like, you know, uh, he's coming off a pick and roll and he throws this no look with the flick of his wrist to the weak side corner. And it's like, I don't have, I can't really explain why that was incredible to someone who has no idea what basketball is. Whereas with Zion, it's like, oh, he jumped, look how fast he jumped twice in a row. Like you can understand that, right? So it's like, it's just easier to kind of sell someone on the game, honestly, with Zion. Do you really have a family member who has no idea who LeBron is and you had to give him a little speech about what LeBron means to basketball before this game? That's incredible. He, yeah, he's technically not in the family yet, but uh oh, well, no, he had no can, can he, we he, can we <laughs> can we vote him out or where are we going here, Michael? What, what? <laughs> Yeah, he had no no clue whatsoever. I mean, it, explaining to him like as I said in the last episode, like the Raptors Bucks game was right before that and I'm like I'm getting caught up with like uh, like Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam trying to talk to him about that, and it was just like, this guy doesn't know who LeBron is. I don't think Pascal Siakam is going to pass the sniff test. Now, he's a human? He, he is. He's not, he like, is a human he's not like a sentient dog or something? Because I don't know if I know anyone in the world who doesn't know who LeBron is. I don't know what to tell you. He... Uh, Shout out to the Netherlands, I guess. <laughs> it's just not, it's not, not that big of a deal there. They don't have TV there? 
No, guess not. Incredible. Let's just do another podcast where we make fun of your poor brother-in-law, who's not actually your brother-in-law yet and may never get there because of uh, how you've talked about him (laughs) on an international podcast. Congratulations, Michael. We have ruined your family dynamic. And on that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, find our page on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. It's two words. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Oliver. I'm on Twitter at Ben Oliver. Guys, we will be back later this week with our normally scheduled episode. We've still got tons more great questions to get through. But if you've got more, email them to us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com there's a bunch of great games going on uh, this week playoff implications and just previews so i uh, encourage you guys all to tune into that as well uh until later this week michael i will talk to you talk soon ben